faith and life. For some people, they're parallel roads. They never come into contact with each other. One never influences the other. Yet for some other people, faith and life are more like intersecting roads. Often they're running opposite each other, but where they do intersect, wonderful God moments can be experienced. But yet for just a few, the two roads merge into one, and the results are truly a highway to heaven. What does the road of faith and life look like in your world? So I believe that we can learn, learn a lot um, just by uh, observing life. Um, there's positive role models, but then there's negative. But even in the negative, we can learn from. Maybe if you've had uh, in your family, if you've had older siblings, um, maybe your older sibling was, you know, they did everything right and you're able to learn and emulate that. But maybe they always got in trouble. And so they spared you a lot of grief because you're able to learn from their mistakes. Well, we just finished a sermon series called GOAT, Greatest of All Times. And during that sermon series, we were really kind of digging into the scripture. We're looking at people who are just really good role models in the faith, people who uh, follow God faithfully and accomplish great things. And there's a lot that we could learn from them. But honestly, we, if we don't take a look at people who maybe were the worst of all times, and I guess you could call it woat, right? But that'd be a weird sermon series, woat. Uh, but we can learn from people's mistakes and, and some of the greatest failures in the Bible. So we're beginning this morning a new message series called Learning from Others' Mistakes. And we're going to look at a pretty big one uh, today. We're going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, you may or may not be familiar with the story, uh, but if you are familiar with the story, you're probably troubled by the story, and you're going to see just a little bit why. Um, it was a time in the church in which um, the, the, the church had kind of uh, come together as one. It was um, starting to be persecuted. The, the faith was new, um, and everyone was combining their resources uh, uh, to support one another. And this uh, person, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell some property, uh, but they end up um, not making God very happy by what it is that, that they did with the sale of the property. Um, let's take a look, starting in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now, there's a man named Ananias who, together with his wife, Sapphira, they sold a piece of property... Now, with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have you've kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but you have lied to God. Now, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some of the young men, they came forward and they wrapped up his body and they carried him out and they buried him. Now, about three hours later, his wife comes in. She hadn't heard about what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? And she said, yes, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. 
Now, at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men who came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who had heard about these events. Now, let's be honest, that's a, that's a difficult story. It seems a little harsh. I mean, it's like, was God having a, a bad day? You know, why in the world does God strike Ananias and Sapphira dead? I mean, it, they gave like, they only kept back a portion. We don't know if it was a quarter. We don't know if it was a third. We don't know what it was. But, you know, uh, they gave away a sizable chunk, laid the money before the apostles' feet, and God strikes them dead for that. Well, it, it is a difficult passage, maybe one that you've struggled with, and uh, it's my hope that when I'm done speaking on it this morning, uh, that you would understand it a little bit better, and that you wouldn't think God's a big meanie or a bully or something like that, right? Um, but there's some lessons and there's some takeaways that I want to uh, take from the story this morning, and the first is this, God cannot be wrong, Okay? This is where we've got to start is, you know, God cannot be wrong. It's not like God's a little moody right now. You know, with our parents, before we ask them for something, you kind of wait till they're in a good mood, right? Because if they're in a good mood, then, you know, we're more likely to get what we're asked for. God's not that way. The Bible says God is the same yesterday as he is today as he will be tomorrow. God's not moody. So what God did in this situation, he would have done, you know, if it was on a different day. He's just never wrong. Isaiah 55, 8 to 9 says this. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and so are my thoughts than your thoughts. So the first thing that we need to understand is like, God, God doesn't owe us an explanation. You know, did you ever have that where you're like yeah, questioning your parents on something and they're like, I don't have to explain myself to you. Well, God doesn't have to explain himself to us. He doesn't have to justify himself to us. He's just never wrong. So when we read stories in scripture, and there are going to be some stories in scripture that just make us feel uncomfortable. And listen, this is one of them. I admit it's one of them. It's just like, if I was God, I want to handle it that way. Like, what's his deal? You know, it, 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 there's a few of them that are like that. Well, the problem's not with God. The problem's with us. But you know what? As you go through life, we have similar things. Some of you in here have gotten mad at God before in life. Maybe yelled at God before in life. You know, there's times when things aren't working the way that we think it should. But what you need to realize is we've got to surrender to God because take it off the table. God's never wrong. When you come up with passages that, that you don't like, they don't sit well with you, you, you just got to like, you just got to wrestle with it for a while. Let, let it simmer a while. And, and eventually maybe you come to a different understanding. The same thing in terms of our lives. And a lot of times, once enough times pass by, we can go back and look at it and see purpose, see intentionality and see good that comes out of it. But in the moment, you need to get it out of your head that somehow God is wrong because God cannot be wrong. So if God cannot be wrong, why in the world is he like, killing these two for giving a sizable portion of, of the sale of a land uh, to the apostles. 
Well, I would say this. Do you enjoy a cubic zirconia or do you enjoy a diamond? Which would you rather have? Would you rather have a Rolex or would you rather have, you know, the knockoff you buy for 10 bucks in New York City? And some of you are kind of sitting there thinking, well, it depends what I pay for. Exactly. If you're paying for the real thing, you want the real thing. Guess what? God paid for the real thing. God loved us so much that he sent his son into this world, gave the greatest gift that he could give, gave the greatest sacrifice that there was. We just got done a week or two ago talking about Abraham, and we, <coughs> we talked about how you can't even wrap your mind around God telling Abraham if he was to tell you to sacrifice your one and only son. But that was what God had done for us. It is the ultimate price. And if you pay the ultimate price for something, if you pay the most that can be paid for something, I'm telling you, you don't want the knockoff. You want the real thing. problem is, is from our perspective, it's hard to tell the difference between the authentic and the knockoff. I, I guess I kind of think about it like when I go to the grocery store. I, you know, I, I, I like fruit, but I can't stand fruit. And I, honestly, I don't even like buying fruit because, you know, one, one week you go and, and you get the watermelon and it's absolutely amazing. The next week you go back and you buy a watermelon that looks exactly like the watermelon you bought the, the time before. You cut into it and it's not even riper. It doesn't have an amazing taste. Fruit is so unpredictable, but from the outside, it, it looks the same. You know, the, the Bible talks about, you know, believers being like, like that, 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 that uh, the, the authentic and the non-authentic at times look very similar. And it's not until the very end of life, it's at the judgment of all things, that they will be separated out. And the Bible uses the term, the difference between sheep and goats. And listen, I've talked to vets who have a hard time knowing the difference between sheep and goats. And I did this a couple years ago, um, but I'm doing it again. Different set of pictures, but I, let, let's just, we're going to test out how good you are with a, a sheep or a goat. Let's see, hands for sheep, hands for goats. Wrong, it's a sheep. Next one, sheep or goat. Hands for sheep, hands for goat. Wrong, it's a sheep. Next one, sheep or goats, hands for sheep, hands for goats. Wrong, it's a sheep. Next one, it's a sheep, they're all sheep. But they look like goats. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, that's the point is like, you know, God wants the authentic, he wants the real, but it, sometimes it's hard to tell what's, from our perspective, what's authentic and what's real. God's kind of discerning it for the people because they can't see the, the difference between Ananias and Sapphira and some of the others. But, you know, a lot of times we judge people by how often they go to church. You know, the devout people, they go every Sunday, Right. And then you got those people who come about eh, every other week or so, and they're, they're moderately devout. They're, you know, they're, they're moderately good. You got then those that come about every four, maybe to six weeks, and they're borderline, man. They're almost like, you know, eh. And then you, you have those people that come at Christmas and Easter, and let's not even talk about that. And we can just talk like that because it's not Christmas and Easter, and you guys are here, so like, I, Right. And, and then you have those that don't even come at all and say that, you know, they're kind of devout in their faith. And what are they thinking? 
But you know, you can't even tell in terms of that. Because let's say, for instance, someone here, someone's here every week. If they're here because their spouse makes them, are they authentic or are they not? My favorite is, is people always say, well, you know, it, we thought it was important to bring the kids to church, you know, uh, be, because we have kids now. And so they'll be in church regularly when they have kids. But when the kids graduate, when the kids go to, to college, you hardly ever see them anymore. So if you're only coming to church because your kids need it, are you authentic or are you not? And let's just say you go to one of those, you know, snazzy mega churches. You know, what if you're going there because a lot of people go there and you can make some really good contacts there and so forth. You know, are you authentic or are you not? From our perspective, it's really hard to see. And, and so God is, is able to see that and God is addressing that uh, because Ananias and Sapphira, they pretend to be authentic, but they're not. Now, I want to show you something. So I read to you from Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now, I've mentioned this before. The Bible was never written in chapter and verse. And so, like, when we read a book, there's usually a, a thought break between chapter 1 and chapter 2, or between chapter 4 and chapter 5. That's what a chapter is, is like, okay, this many part of the story is done, I move into something else. The Bible's not written that way. It's written in constant narrative. Chapter and verse are added later so that, you know, the pastor can sit up here and say, let's go to Acts chapter 5, verse 1, and you know where, where to turn. That's not how the Bible's written. So if we go to the end of Acts chapter 4, that's just literally immediately before Acts 5 in the narrative, and there's no breakdown <coughs> in terms of how it was originally written between Acts 4 and 5. But let's look at the end of Acts chapter 4, because what I just finished reading to you was the start of Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 4 ends this way, though. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was not even a needy person amongst them. Now, from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now, if that's how it's set up, that, that they're sharing everything in common, powerful things are happening, everyone gave to the apostles, and here's Barnabas who sold everything. Now we're comparing that and contrasting immediately to this person called Ananias and Sapphira who were trying to pretend to be like Barnabas, but actually weren't. And so you see the problem. The problem is, is from our perspective, it's hard to tell who's authentic and who's not, but from God's perspective, he can tell. And Ananias and Sapphira were pretending to be like Barnabas, and they're not. It's a challenge in the church today. Who's, who's legit and who's not? Who are the real believers and who aren't? You know, it's the difference between the true, true church and the invisible church. You know, the last year, year and a half, um, there's been a lot of stirring and a lot of shaking up in the church. Um, I, I can't tell you, oh, I don't want to exaggerate, um, but I want to say hundreds, but a lot, dozens, 
have repeatedly, you know, if I have engaged them in conversation, said, you know, I'm just really disappointed in, in how the church has behaved over the course of the pandemic. I just would hear that over and over and over again. Now, I'm not here to say that there's any one, one right way for a church to behave or to not behave, and there's not any right way that a believer should have behaved or not, but let's, let's, let's kind of flush that out for motive and such. Now, if a church had a bunch of elderly people and, and they were really, you know, concerned that uh, coronavirus was going to kill everyone, you know, and they shut everything down, okay, I get it. But what you don't know is there's so much politics in church. And there's so much pressure for people who give the most or, or are the most influential to have their perspective heard. And I can tell you that there's a number of churches that stay closed because, honestly, the biggest donors said, you know what, Pastor, if you open back up, or if you open up, um, me and my family, we're going to go somewhere else and we're going to stop supporting this church. And, and, and then, like, just the fear that, you know, if, if they do something that's unpopular, that they're going to lose a bunch of people. You know, it turns out the churches that stayed open, that, that stayed somewhat confident in all of this, uh, like John MacArthur's and, and like ours and other, these are the churches that, grow, that, that grew during the time of the pandemic. But I guarantee you this. If many of the pastors who closed their churches had known by keeping them open, their churches would have grown, they would have kept it open. Not for the right reasons, but because they want growth. So you can judge motives. And, and there's just been a lot of that. People are like, I've been disappointed in my church. I've been disappointed. It's, it's been kind of made clear. You know, you, you got an elder, uh, the most influential person at the church says, God told me to, to close it down. Well, you know, six months later, some, suddenly God tells them to open it back. Okay. And, and on the individual perspective, like once again, if you, if you were really worried for your life and you stayed home, Okay. But everyone's had the opportunity for the vaccine now. I was just meeting with a group of pastors uh, this past week. I'm a circuit visitor over a group of like, uh, it's like a, uh, whatever, uh, over a group of 10 pastors. And, um, and I was asking them, I'm like, so what's going on at your churches? Um, how, how many people are still gone? And almost without exception, all, you know, 10 different pastors, they all said about a quarter of their church hasn't come back. And they haven't come back even though everyone's had opportunity to have vaccine. Uh, will they ever come back? I, a lot of people are thinking, no. So even if your motive was for, for health and safety for, from the front end, if you're choosing not to, why? Well, because some people just were, were kind of like borderline anyways. They weren't really into it, or they weren't going for the right reasons, or they fell out of the habit, or they just enjoy watching church in their jammies. I mean, it, it just, it shows itself for what it is. I was talking to a pastor uh, not too long ago, and this pastor was um, uh, kind of trying to figure out if he should stay or go where he's at and so forth. And uh, there's some financial uh, concerns that he, that he was having. And I'm like, well, do you, do you really think that you're going to be able to meet your financial needs by staying as a pastor? Do you want to continue in the ministry for the rest of your working career? Do you, do you think you need to consider non-ministry type options? And he's like, no, um, I, uh, I think I, uh, no, I, I, I can't see myself doing anything again, uh, other than ministry. Um, and then as serious as can be, he said, unless someone like pays me to play video games or someone pays me to watch sports. I, that was a time I wish I had a mask on, right? Because I'm trying to keep my face from contorting. 
Why? And maybe, maybe, maybe you guys kind of understand it, but from my perspective, it's like you could pay me, I, I swear to you, that if someone said, I'll pay you a million dollars a year to just fish every day or fish Monday through Friday, I, I wouldn't even think about it. I wouldn't even comprehend it. I, no, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Why would, why would I do that? Because I, I'm not in this for the money and I'm not in this for uh, the, any personal satisfaction or whatever. I'm doing it because I feel like I've been called by God to serve. And if, if we're pastors, we, we should be doing it that way rather than, oh, I got a better offer, right? I got an, I look, I got an email this morning from a member who boarded a flight yesterday. And um, as he was walking past first class, uh, there was one of the stars from American Gospel. Now, if you know that movie, that's not a compliment, okay? Because it's about the whole prosperity gospel movement and people who, uh, um, their theology is pretty loose and, uh, and, and can take advantage of people. This person's one who has a gift of uh, helping people's legs lengthen when one's not really even shorter than the other. Sitting in first class as this member of the congregation who does fairly well for himself goes to like row 25, now, listen, on what level does that bother me? Well, the whole leg thing bothers me. But honestly, why, you're a pastor. Why are you guys sit in first class? Go sit with the common people, right? It's for, you know, what's authentic and what's not? Sometimes we have a hard time determining it, but you know what? God sees right through it. God calls for us to be authentic followers. Second thing that I want to point out, or third thing from this, is that, you know what? You can't lie to God. It's funny, when, when they go and tell Peter, uh, Peter's like, is this all you got? Now, Peter didn't talk to the closing agent or whatever. Peter doesn't know uh, how much they got, but God's speaking to Peter like, they're lying to you, Peter. So Peter asks them, and they, they lie, and Peter says, you know what? You're not just lying to me, you're lying to God. And I'm here to tell you, it just never works out well when you lie to God. Now, here's what I thought was amazing. I, every time I talk about lying, I'm like, how much do people lie anyways? I was shocked. Do you know that we get lied to 10 to 200 times a day? I have to tell you, I'm a very naive person. I mean, I'm kind of thinking maybe if you get lied to, you know, 20 times in a year, I thought that was it. 10 to 200 times a day? Some of us, you know, if like we're being lied to 10 to 200 times a day, some of us are probably pretty good at it ourselves, right? And someone said, uh, did you ever hear the Seinfeld episode? George Costanza said, it's not a lie if you really believe it yourself. <laughs> There's some truth to that, right? We convince ourselves of, uh, of, of things that aren't true. And when we convince ourselves that, 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 of that, then it's not like it's not a lie. So like, for instance, for the IRS, oh, they don't, you know, they get enough of my money. I don't got to report that. For the company, my goodness, I've been, you know, working over for how long and they never fully compensate me. So if I, if I lie in this report, this expense report, and I get a little bit back, they owe me. We believe it, so it's like it's not a lie. Here's the funny thing is God, God knows. He knows your motives. He knows your heart. And I can't tell you, like, how many times it doesn't happen all that often, but I know when it does. Like, maybe I said something to someone I shouldn't have. Or I did something that I, I, I know I shouldn't have done. 
And when it's time to kind of pray at night and it's quiet and everything, and I start talking to God about it, I'll start trying to justify my actions. Well, you know, if they hadn't said this, and if, they, if this hadn't had that, and I catch myself, and, and, and literally, like, I'll usually be like 30 seconds into it, and I'll literally pray, oh, never mind, I'm sorry. Because you can't lie to him. We try to justify to him just like we try to justify to other people. And we can do that to one another because I can sell you my version of the story and, 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 and allow you to buy into that and maybe get you to agree. But God knows the true motives. He knows that everything's going on. And so sometimes it's just like, never mind. I messed up. I'll do it better next time. I'm sorry. Here's the funny thing is why do we try to justify to others and God so that we would not be wrong? But with God, you can't justify to him. If you just admit you're wrong, guess what? But you've just justified yourself to him. It's when we admit that we're wrong and we don't try to make our lives right. It's when we admit that we're wrong that he's like, eh, not a big deal, forgiven. You can't lie to God. Next thing is we can learn from this is a little bit of holy fear is healthy. What does it say? It says after like Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, like fear comes over all the believers. And we're going to see in a second, it turns out to be a good thing. Honestly, God uses death and he uses the threat of death to kind of make us better people. You know, there's that whole flood thing when he destroyed the earth because it had just gotten so wicked. Apparently we're not quite that wicked yet because he hasn't like come back and hasn't like redestroyed it or anything. So it worked for a while, right? And, and he tells us he is coming back to judge and as it was in the days of the flood, so it will be. So that, that holy fear is still there a little bit, right? Because we know we're going to have to give account. There's a story in the Bible called Sodom and Gomorrah. And that, the, the story in Sodom and Gomorrah told us, you know, what immorality is and, and human sexuality and marriage and, and that God doesn't approve of homosexuality and all these other things. I mean, that, that, that worked for like 3,800 years before we kind of forgot that lesson. And then there's like that whole pandemic thing. And you know what was funny about the pandemic? People said, you know what? When people stayed home, there's less smog. Uh, the, the, the earth stopped vibrating because people weren't driving their vehicles as much. It got quiet. Guess what? People got quiet too. And guess what? They got nicer. That was a crazy thing about like the, the, the pandemic is like when people are afraid that they're going to die, all of a sudden they become nicer to one another. And, and, and like, I didn't hear of like the, the, the North Korean leader. He wasn't like shooting off his mouth and his missiles during the pandemic. He was afraid of dying. I'm not aware that any new war started during the time of the pandemic. When people are dying, they, they're pretty nice people or they think they're dying at least, right? You know, when I knew the pandemic was over, I actually did a podcast on it. I mean, it's over now. I think we all pretty much agree. Everyone agrees it's, it's, it's over now. Um, but but I, I called it in, at Easter, a couple days after Easter. And you know how I knew? Because after Easter, I heard everyone like, nah, 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 nah. you shouldn't use that much smoke or fog. You, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't. Nah, 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 nah. Everyone just started getting negative and nitpicking again. And man, we are in full swing of negativity again. Why? Because, well, we don't think we're dying anymore. God uses fear of, of death to kind of curb behavior. And that's exactly what he does here with Ananias and Sapphira. And as it turns out, it turned out to be a good thing for the church, which is my last point. So when we read the text, 
We're kind of like, God's mean. God's a bully. He's having a bad day, right? That, that is our reaction when we read the, t- the, the text. So you would think that when God starts acting that way, people are like, I, you know, when God doesn't act the way that we think he should, when, he's, when life isn't going well, people will even question God out. If that's how God is, I don't want to be a part of it. You would think that that would have been the mindset of the people. Not at all. The people aren't falling away from the church when God does this. People actually start streaming towards it. Look at Acts 5, 12 to 16. I just finished reading to you Acts chapter 5, verse 12. That was the end of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's where I'm picking up. So the apostles performed many signs and wonders amongst the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, but no one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. But check out this nevertheless. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Why is there a nevertheless? Because nevertheless that Ananias fell and Sapphira fell flat on their face because they didn't give all to, 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 to the apostles because they lied to God and God struck them dead in the moment. Nevertheless, more and more people keep coming to the church. The church is growing. I told you God's never wrong. They're not offended by God. They're not insulted by him. They embrace him. Why? I don't know. For the same reason, like a wife doesn't want a husband that's spineless. Who wants, who wants a husband that's spineless? Who wants a God who's spineless that won't stand for anything? What are the takeaways from the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, the first is this, God's never wrong. And as you encounter stories in scripture, as you encounter life and you don't like what's being said, maybe you didn't even like some of the stuff that I said today. So what? God's not wrong. And if, it do, if you don't like it, if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't set right, the problem's not with God, it's with you and it's with me. And then the second takeaway is this. God wants our faith to be authentic. He wants us to be authentic followers. He deserves it. He's paid the price. And God knows the difference if we're authentic or if we're not. Be authentic in your faith. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious, almighty, heavenly Father, we just thank and praise you. We thank you for the difficult texts, the ones that people don't like to talk about, that maybe paint a picture of you different than oftentimes gets painted, but we thank you for who you are and what you are, that you are a just God, you're a holy God, you're a righteous God, and we are sinful people, and in so many different ways, we've fallen away from you and turned against you. Our ways have increasingly been different than yours. Help us, gracious God, to um, never look to you to, uh, to conform to us, but that we would surrender and conform to you. And merciful God, we're... The temptation is to, to be inauthentic in our faith. Help us to be real with you. To be real in our thoughts, to be real in our attitudes, and to be real in our actions. And that as we pray to you, that we would never seek to justify that which cannot be justified. But where we have failed and where we are wrong, that we say, 
I'm sorry. I'll do better next time. And in that, we become justified. Help us to be legit in our faith, to be the real thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.